Welcome to Kids Doc Talk with Dr. Jenny. Dr. Jenny is a board-certified pediatrician and is the director of telemedicine at Pediatric Associates. Welcome to Kids Doc Talk with Dr. Jenny. Today's returning guest is Dr. Ken Ginsberg, founder and program director of the Center for Parent and Teen Communication at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Ginsberg is an adolescent medicine physician and professor of pediatrics at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He speaks to parent, professional, and youth audiences nationally and internationally, and is the author of five award-winning books. His latest two books, Congrats, You're Having a Teen, and Building Resilience in Children and Teens, are both available from the AAP. Welcome back, Dr. Ginsberg. Hello, Dr. Ginsberg. Welcome back. Thank you. It's so so wonderful to be here with you, Dr. Jenny. Um, So last time we talked, we had, uh, I think, a great conversation, got a lot of good feedback in general about resiliency and uh, ways that we can support adolescents. So um, I wanted to continue that conversation and narrow in a little bit on a hot topic, which is mental health in this population. I've had several episodes on uh, this same very same topic, but I think it's an important conversation to continue. It's it's an evolving conversation, and certainly I'm learning more about uh, about this um, from my own patients and from the literature from people like you out there. So um, I I want to start maybe just give us a little bit of framework on what are common um, mental health issues that teenagers experience. Right. So the first thing to remember is that. Uh, two things can be true at once. An individual teenager can be both um, vulnerable and suffering from distress and be inherently resilient. I just want to start by saying that because a parent's role is to build their resilience while addressing their distress, right? A parent wants to do both of those things. So what are the things that we're seeing some increasing trends of? We're seeing increasing trends of um, anxiety, right, of worry. Um, And that shouldn't be surprising in a time of uncertainty, right? We're seeing increasing rates of um, depression, right? And we're seeing increasing rates of some of those things that we call internalizing behaviors, things like eating disorders. We're seeing all of these increasing rates, but my message to parents is don't pay attention to rates, pay attention to your child and look for the signals that your child is sending um, and always look through both lenses, what might be causing distress and what are those factors that build their strength. Um, that some of these things are increasing. And I know we're going to focus on this idea that we just need to recognize the individual child. But uh, as a pediatrician, I can't help but be curious. And I think I, I have I have my own conclusions, but I, I'm curious what your insight is on like why these things have been increasing over the last couple of years. Why is the incidence of things like anxiety and depression increasing in this population? Right. So the first thing is we're not sure yet. Uh, The second thing is that there are many factors, undoubtedly. And the third is try to stay away from the simple answers that make it too easy, because there are many things that can be true at once. So let's look at the factors that we think are in play. Um, The first thing is we've just come through a pandemic. The pandemic was a crisis of human disconnection. 
It was about human isolation. And why did adolescents suffer particularly during the pandemic? They suffered because adolescents are supposed to be stretching their wings and becoming more independent. That's literally their job. And during the pandemic, they were actually restricted in terms of what they could do. That means that the thing they needed to do for development, which is stretch in a new territory, was shut down. What else are adolescents supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be forming human connections. They're supposed to be finding role models, um, uh, learning what real friendship and real relationships mean, to have a sense of belonging in their community and in their school and among their peer group and within their family. And what happened is there was disconnection from so many of those support systems. So adolescents in particular suffered because it is their job to connect, right? What else is happening? We are living through a time of profound uncertainty, right? It's not just about the pandemic. Have you looked at adult behavior, the divisive rhetoric, the inaction to real social problems? This creates a real sense of uncertainty. And adolescents are imagining their future, and they're not seeing that adults are paving the way to tackle problems and to do what we need to do as a culture, which is come together. And I think all of these factors together, and then I'm going to add the one that I'm intentionally adding last, and that is the era of social media. The reason that I am adding in last is because it is the first one everyone else goes to. And it is the simple answer. It's the answer that just allows you to go, social media is the problem, and that makes you stop thinking. And when you're not thinking about the tougher issues, like the importance of human connection, the importance of our society coming together, um, and I won't play into that by giving just the easy answer. But when you're not with real people as much, but you are spending a lot of time on social media, which can uh, be a wonderful thing for young people, but can also be problematic depending on what they're exposed to, all of this is in play. I remember last episode asking you about social media because I think I am similarly guilty of oversimplifying some of these issues and being the first to blame social media for a lot of the things that I see um, that my patients are struggling with. And I remember your answer was like, I never had an interview where someone doesn't ask me about social media. So I agree. It's it's sometimes the first to be blamed, I, uh, but, but it sounds like it's much more complex than that. And um, I think when we blame social media exclusively for some of these things makes it less likely that we're going to really identify what some of these some of these other risk factors are. Um, I, I want to focus. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, Dr. Janey, not just the risk factors, but also the solutions, right? If If the crisis is of human connection, the solution is of human belonging and of coming together. And so that's why it's so urgent that we not just blame one thing. Um, so. 
Okay, so I want to talk about solutions, but first I want to kind of narrow the focus a little bit. So you gave a really nice like overview of some overarching themes that would explain why um, this is really a challenging time for for adolescents right now. What can parents sort of look for in their individual child, right, and in, in each child to maybe say, wait a minute, this is a red flag, maybe there's something going on. Right. So the first thing you have to remember is that we have to throw away the mythologies of adolescence because if we believe the mythologies of adolescence, we're going to miss the signals that they're giving. And I want to talk about two of them in particular. One of the myths of adolescence is that they don't like their parents and they don't like adults and they just want to withdraw. Um, that is simply not true. Um, and uh, what that, but if you believe that myth, when your adolescent is withdrawing from you entirely, you just say, oh, this is normal. And you've missed as a major red flag that your child is withdrawing from everybody. Now, don't get me wrong. All adolescents will at some point push their parents away because that's what they do on the way to adulthood. But if your child is truly withdrawing from the family, withdrawing from things that they used to like, including their peer groups, going out, all of these things, withdrawal is very much of a red flag. Another red flag is physical symptoms. Dr. Jenny, I'll bet this is a very big part of your practice as it is of mine. Young people whose bodies are taking the toll of their emotional state, whether they're having headaches, chest pain, fatigue, sleeping too much, not sleeping enough. Um, uh, when they um, uh, are having belly pains. These are not kids who are faking. These are kids whose bodies are showing the toll. And while we always want to bring these uh, children and teens to a doctor for evaluation, we always want for that doctor and ourselves as parents to recognize that this might actually be a show of stress. The, I, I just want to I just want to point that nuance that a really important nuance out of what you just said. These symptoms are real because sometimes when I have these discussions with parents where and and again, to emphasize, this should be evaluated. Right. We don't just say, oh, you have a tummy ache. It must be stress like we were evaluated and it's kind of a, a relative diagnosis of exclusion. But when I bring up the idea to a family that this might be related, right, it's psychosomatic or in other words, like related to something going on. or they're lazy or it's because they don't want to go to school but the symptoms are very real the child truly feels right insert the symptom right stomach ache um headache anxiety uh, you know fatigue etc so i just think that's really important to emphasize it's critical and when i explain this to families i actually explain why stress creates physical symptoms it's not an emotional experience it's a physical experience that's related the easiest one that i find to explain to families is when human beings are stressed their body goes into fight or flight mode when you're in fight or flight mode you need the blood in your um, legs so you can run and in your muscles so you can be ready to jump and what that where that blood comes from is the area around your belly so you have butterflies 
Butterflies is literally the blood shifting from your belly to go to your muscles so you can jump and run. And then if you maintain that level of stress, there's not enough blood in your belly and then you eat and it hurts because you're not ready to digest. It's entirely real, but it's also a clue that a human being is in fight or flight mode. Um, so yes, thank you so much for pointing that out. And let's, let's keep going down the list of signs. Um, another myth about adolescence is that they're always angry or irritable. So while they might act out for a moment or two, um, it's critical for people to realize that um, irritability is a sign of depression in adolescence. Not a mood. Everybody's entitled to a mood. I'm in my 60s and I get moods, right? Um, but the point is that if someone is truly irritable, that can really be what adolescent depression looks like. And adult depression always includes sadness. That's not true of adolescent depression. It can include anger or irritability. And I actually think that's the biggest thing that's missed by parents. Um, and then there's other kind of external clues. School is the marker for your child's life. That's their job. If grades are dropping, something's going on. Use that as a clue and check in. These are really important. Um, what about when some of these are more, this might be, this might be a tough one to discuss, but what about when these are a little bit more subtle? And I'm thinking the patients that I see where it's a dramatic change from like a happy, outgoing social kid that's doing well in school. And now one of those things isn't true. I feel like that's easier to recognize. What about the thing the the kids that are already quiet, already a little bit more shy? Maybe they don't have a ton of friends. Maybe they're not, they're not stellar academically. Sometimes I find that when shifts happen for these kids, by the time they're recognized, it's very, very late because it takes such a long time. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And it's why, you know, the biggest message we can give parents is, you know, you're the expert on your child, not me. And you have a sense of what is normal for your child and what's not. And I'll tell you what is never a mistake, Jenny. It is never a mistake to check in with your child. Um, I will tell you, um, as you know, I work in a hospital setting and I often see kids after a disaster has happened. And I'll tell you that one of the most common things I hear from dads, um, uh, they were acting out, but I thought they were just trying to get attention and I didn't want to give them the attention and buy into it. And what I would say to parents out there is two things. If your child is pleading for attention, even in ways you don't like, give it to them. Give it to them. Um, uh, it is just means that they need you to check in, believe a child if they tell you that they're angry or sad. Children do not hurt themselves because a parent has checked in with them, right? Um, and the other thing is for the child that you're referring to, um, or really any child, it is a wonderful thing when parents just say, there's a lot of things going on in the world. How are you? How are you handling it? Do I have to worry about you? 
How can I guide you? Now, each one of those things, that's not one big long sentence, but those are the kind of things that we say, what can I do for you to support you? The world is complicated right now. I want to check in on your experience. And then you just listen. But what it tells the child is you're open. You're open to hearing. And now avoid the pitfall of parenting. Don't try to fix or talk before you've listened. Being available, showing them that you're noticing that things are going on and that you love deeply and you want to be present is a really good start, right? Kids don't want you to jump in with advice until you've heard their perspective. Listen, 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 and be present. I feel like that's a theme I'm learning a little bit more about actually from from your social media because that's that's a very common message that um, right your your center puts out is, is like really just be open and be ha- have the door open um, for ongoing communication and allow your kids to come to you. So I, I let's talk maybe a little bit more like solutioning of if when a parent recognizes that things are going on other than being available um, and making sure that there's an open line of communication. What else can parents do when they have these concerns? So I want to just underscore how important it is to listen and to be present, right? So you're not supposed to know all of the solutions. You know, what we're doing in social media that you just referred to is the hashtag standby teens. Um, and the mess- And that's in response to mental health, right? Mm-hmm. The answer is what a parental job is, is to show up, to be present, and to get a few key messages apart uh, uh, across. Number one, thank you for sharing your life with me. Number two, you're not in this journey alone, right? Number three, you're gonna get through this with me by your side. And then number four, you wanna basically say, um, uh, you really might deserve more than I can give right now. I can be your parent and never stop loving you, but, you deserve some professional support as well to really build on your strengths and to be able to talk to someone who you can just say anything you want to with no fear of being judged, no fear of disappointing them, just someone who's there to listen to you. I think you deserve that. And I'm going to say one other thing, Dr. Jenny, and this doesn't necessarily apply to every parent, but It's really hard to see your child suffer. And it's really hard to see your child be anxious or sad. But what I want to say is that some of the most spectacular human beings on earth happen to be extremely emotionally intelligent and full of awareness and full of feelings. And what that does is it predicts that they're going to be awesome adults. But during adolescence, when they're emotionally brilliant, they haven't yet learned to leverage those emotions. So you're talking to a guy who's 61. He's had the best life in the world. um, And who, when I was 17, I was deeply depressed. And what happened is I heard 
10,000 times that I was too sensitive, I thought too much, or I worried too much. And what I really needed to hear was the best thing about you is how much you care. The best thing about you is how sensitive you are. Your challenge right now is learn how to manage this superpower you have, and you'll benefit from some guidance getting there. So if your child is deeply sensitive, and right now it's playing out in depression or anxiety, congratulate them and let them know that they're not broken. Let them know you're going to stand with them, that they're absolutely wonderful and that they're deserving of learning how to manage this gift that they have. I think that's incredibly powerful. I think that sounds like a super tool for being able to have that conversation, to start having that conversation with, um, really, I think any age child just has to be kind of age appropriate, but in this context with adolescents and young adults, what are some other practical strategies or practical ways to start the conversation? Because I'm thinking of parents whose kids are not adolescents yet, they're probably thinking, great, I can start now. And by the time my kids are older, I have this this relationship with them that we can talk about anything and they know they can come to me. What about parents who of of adolescents now who maybe weren't doing that so much when their kids were younger or were and then stopped or were and it wasn't successful? What are strategies that they can maybe call upon now, including the one that you just mentioned, um, to get the conversation going? You know, it's funny. Um, I'm actually writing a book right now. Like when I get off from you, I am writing a book for parents of preteens to set the stage so that they'll have successful adolescents. I, I am going to answer your question, Jenny, but I, but I want you to remember that or your audience to remember that the Center for Parent and Teen Communication has all of these tips up on parentandteen.com about how to get conversations started, what to say and what not to say. So two points I'd like to make right now. The first is your timing may not match your child's timing, right? And we wish kids came with office hours, right? That we'd walk on the door, knock at 9 p.m. and say, I know that you were um, pushing me away and acting like you didn't want to talk to me after school. But since it's 9 o'clock and office hours, we're going to talk about your feelings. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Um, you have to be available when the windows are given to you, when your child seems mm -hmm. upset, when your child, the same child who pushes you away in the morning, is going to put their head on your um, shoulder in the evening. Um, to tell you what really happened. Um, but you also take advantage of other opportunities. You take advantage when you're driving in the car, when your child's been down, and you remember that there's a lot of children or teenagers who don't want to say, um, I'd like to talk about feelings now, or I'd like to talk about my feelings. So you drive past things and you notice things, or you watch TV and you listen to a song and you say, what would you do if, or you drive by the grocery market and you see some teenagers in trouble um, or who seem to be in some way rebelling and you go, so many people nowadays are talking about um, how much adolescents are struggling. How about you? How are you doing? So you look for those external conversation starters. So that's one thing I wanna say is look for the external conversation starters and I guess the second thing I already said is do it on their timeline, not yours. 
be available and flexible. And the third is going to blow you away, Dr. Jenny. Apologize. You said in your question, what about for those parents who haven't gotten it right and now they recognize they need to jump in? That's a parent who, if they said to their child, I know I haven't done things perfectly for you, no parent does, but know that I never stopped loving you and I want to be here for you now and I sense that you're troubled, guide me how to parent you. What do you need? Right? So you really, that's what you can't do to an eight-year-old, right? You can't say to an eight-year-old, guide me how to parent you. But you really can to a teenager. And when they pull their jaw off the floor because you have apologized for something and asked to do better, um, it's amazing. Can I go in a slightly different direction, but I think is also critical to answer this question? Yeah, please, please. I just before you do, I just I just want to say something because I said it last time, and I just want to say it again that whoever is listening to this and when they heard that answer, and their initial reaction is like, "Oh, that sounds hard." Right, it is hard. Right, this this is parenting is hard. Parenting teens is super hard. So I don't want someone listening to that and being like, "Oh, I don't, I don't know, I don't think I'm supposed to be doing that." That sounds way too hard. Nothing has gone wrong. It is supposed to be hard. I wouldn't have a career if parenting wasn't hard, right? <laughs> I wouldn't have the Center for Parenting Communication. I wouldn't write books. They'd be unnecessary, right? This is hard work, and it's doubly hard because the thing it's like having your heart on the outside of your body, like that's how much you love. And when you're not um, uh, feeling like things are going well, uh, we get really hard on ourselves, right? Um, this is hard, hard work. Human relationships are hard, but there's no other relationship you care as much about than that of your children, okay? Um, and I want to I make one other point, and this is going to take you to one more step of how hard it is. Our children read us. They read us from very young ages. I can remember one of my daughters, I have identical girls, one of my daughters used to go and get Band-Aids if I looked sad. Like she'd be three years old and she'd put Band-Aids on me if I looked like I had something on my mind, right? Our kids are such sensors. Um, and that continues through adolescence. There is a lot of research that shows that no matter how adolescents are behaving, they care deeply about their parents' well-being. And what happens is that sometimes when our children need us the most, they don't come to us because they don't want to burden us. They think that there's already so much on our plate that they actually, in an act of what they think is kindness or sparing us, don't tell us what's going on in their lives. So one of the things, and, and this, this can be true in families with, maybe, maybe especially true in families with the closest relationships, right? Because your kids are so sensitive to your thoughts and feelings, but you've gone through a disease, you're from maybe an immigrant family, maybe there's trauma in your past, maybe you're managing a divorce, Right? Maybe things are hard at work. Maybe another sibling 
has had a crisis that's been going on for years or has been ill, what happens is these kids watch you and they say, I love my mom or my dad so much. I'm just going to pretend everything's okay. I know I can handle this. I'm going to go to my friend instead. And I think that that's one of the main barriers that none of us talk about. So one of the other things that I try to help parents understand is how to have the please don't spare me conversation with their child. It goes something like, darling, I love you so much. And something I notice is how you actually protect me sometimes. You know, I know, uh, you know, you know what's going on with me and your dad. And I um, see you're protecting me and almost keeping your feelings inside. Well, you're right. There is a lot going on in my life. But I want you to know something. Nothing matters as much to me as you and your well-being. And as much as I maybe can't handle everything perfect in my life, I actually think I'd be a really good parent to you if you give me the chance. But I could only do it if you choose to share what's going on in your life. You honor me when you do. Something like that. Like that's, you know, Ginsburg language. But I don't know how you're going to say it. But the don't spare me, include me. I want to be there is, I think, gets past one of the major barriers to family under communication in even the most loving families. I think this is huge. This is super critical because kids are so smart. And even if, like you're saying, they sense there's angst or dysfunction or stress in an adult in their home. But a lot of times I think we, we meaning adults, will so contribute to that inadvertently just by the conversation that's happening around them. Oh, so much going on at work. Oh, I had the craziest day. Oh, I'm so exhausted, right? We're all, right, all, all adults, that, at least that I know, are, right, overworked and overstressed and overscheduled. And kids sense that. They see it. They hear it. And so I can absolutely understand how they would draw the conclusion that there's no room for, for whatever they need. I'd like to build on your word room, Jenny, right? So, you know, we talk about self-care so often. Self-care is like the end of every book or the end of every podcast. I'm going to give you another reason to do self-care. It's to show your child you have room, right? Um, if your plate seems full, no one's adding to your plate. When you um, not only take care of yourself, but you're transparent about doing so, um, you say things out loud like, Oof, what a day I'm going for a run. Oh, I felt like a mess today. I'm calling your aunt. She's the only one who's going to listen to everything I'm going to say because I just need to vent, vent, vent. But when you show them what you're doing, you're not only modeling how to deal with life's complexity, you're showing them, actually, I'm making room. It's really strategic parenting. I love that. I'm, I'm smiling because my kids have heard me say that so many times. Oh, I'm so stressed out. I'm going to go for a run. So <laughs> hopefully that's that's translating to like, hey, it's, this is important. And also I have room for your stuff. Um, so I, I like that. That resonates with me. I want to end by asking you, you mentioned it briefly, but I want to get some more information about the Stand by Teens movement, a little bit of background on it and what what you're hoping to accomplish with it. Absolutely. So the Center for Parent and Teen Communication 
um, launched a social media campaign called um, hashtag StandbyTeens. And the title says it all. Um, when we speak of a mental health crisis and we do it in crisis language, it actually terrifies people because people aren't equipped to deal with crisis. You need a lot of training to do that and it can disempower people. But the truth is that what adults need to do is show up, be present, let young people know that they're not alone. So what this campaign is doing is putting out tidbits, like literally 90 second tidbits, different social media platforms to um, give people advice about how to show up. Like if you took what we just talked about for an hour, because you asked great questions, Dr. Jenny, but you turn them into 90 second sound bites, that's what we're putting out there. But we also want this to be literally a movement. Like we don't want people to just show up at parentandteen.com and go to our websites and our social media campaign. We want people writing to each other with the hashtag StandbyTeens because we want people to know that teenagers are deserving of our focused attention. And one of the greatest ways we're going to stand by them is to stop making them believe that they're walking into a future that's hopeless. We have to really, really take on some large societal issues. And 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 let me say something. You know, we're, we're talking about the crisis of this generation. You may have heard me say this before, Dr. Jenny, but I think this might be the greatest generation ever, right? This generation was formed with a crisis of human connection. That means that as they rebound, they're very likely going to be prioritizing the importance and the power of people coming together to solve problems. So left to their own devices, that's who our teens would be as they grow up to become parents and grandparents. But they're looking around and they're hearing all of these messages of divisiveness as we all go into our corners. And we've part of standing by teens is to not do that to model what it means to be an adult who cares about humanity and community and most importantly them so i invite your listeners to join our movement by coming to our materials or creating their own and beginning to write about the importance of standing by teens thank you thank you so much i think that's that's an, an amazing um initiative an amazing campaign I have learned so much just by the um, the social media that your center puts out. I've shared it with um, so many people because I feel like this is um, a common question for parents of kids of all ages because we're all, I, I, I tell people like having, having a preteen or having a kid that's not a teenager yet, I feel like I'm driving really fast down the highway and like I want to put the brakes on, but I can't. So I, I see what's coming and I think we all we all just want to be prepared. And I think you guys have so much um, amazing information and tools on there. So th thank you so much for putting that out there. And thank you again for coming coming for round two of, of an important conversation with me. It was an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. Take care. Make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for joining us on Kids Doc Talk.